Welcome to A Little Bit Radical, a business podcast from Standing on Giants. I'm Rob, your host. Join me as I meet people and organisations who are doing things differently, challenging the status quo and yes, might just be a little bit radical. A lot of us are trying to make greener choices in life, but have you ever considered a greener choice in death? Sarah Jones is the founder of Full Circle Funerals, a B Corp funeral company giving people a wide range of choices for their ceremony, from traditional to alternative to green. In a recently published report by PlanetMark, the first of its kind, it was found that there is a large range of potential impacts associated with our final send-off, from coffin to body committal. So whether it's choosing a life art environment coffin over traditional mahogany veneer, or having a natural burial over cremation, there's more options than ever for the eco-conscious. I'm fascinated to get into this one. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here on such an incredibly important, world-renowned business podcast. Thank you very much for that. I didn't pay you to say that at all. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that wasn't primed at all. <laughs> so. No, it's genuinely a pleasure to be here. So thank you for having Absolutely me. Absolutely pleasure to have you and such an interesting mm-hmm. topic. So I'm sure we're going to have a fantastic conversation. So Sarah, if you are a little bit radical and you're on our podcast, so we know you are, what do you think in your early life set you up for that? So I think it's a great question. And actually, one of the bits that I've enjoyed most when listening to the podcast, interested to see what other people have said, there's sort of two bits to my answer. So the first is I had quite a roaming childhood. So by the time I got to secondary school, I had lived in a number of different countries and hadn't spent longer than maybe a year and a half, two years at any school. So I think what that probably brings that might be relevant from a radical perspective is I guess I had seen that things can be done in lots of different ways. You know, you you leave one country, you go to another one, and actually how they do school is really different and everything looks different and feels different. So it's probably given me a bit of breadth in terms of appreciating that there are generally multiple ways to do something. And the second thing is my dad. Now as an adult, I realise that my dad is actually a very radical guy. And he had a very traditional career and a very, you know, worked in in a big corporate and did what he needed to do. But actually, everything he stands for and talks about is actually gently challenges maybe the perceived and prevailing wisdom. And every time we would talk about anything, it would always be a why and why does it work like that? And is there a different way to do that? And he's just generally a yeah, a pretty radical guy. I think that's probably, well, it will have, of course, had a huge impact on how I see the world and how I do stuff. So that's my answer, I think, to an incredibly awesome question. No, well, thank you very much. Flattery accepted. Well, I think the two brilliant sides of the answer there. Lots of countries growing up. What kind of countries? What kind of cultures were you exposed to? Well, it, theoretically, not that different. So Ireland, England and the Netherlands. Oh, OK. Yeah. So not, you know, on on paper, probably, you know, a bit of a language thing going on. But other than that, you'd think fairly similar, but actually really different from, I mean, little things to, you know, the uniform that you wear, to class sizes, to the stuff that people get up to out of school, to how, what lessons look and feel like, to, I guess, what you have to do as a new person to fit in. Like, how do you socialise? How do you make new friends? What do teachers expect from you? So I wasn't aware of any of this at the time, but I guess looking back on it, 
well, it would certainly lead you to see that there are lots of lots of different ways to do something and do it well. I guess it must encourage a, a kind of a healthy, I don't know whether scepticism is the right word, but presumably whenever you hear someone quite dogmatically saying that there's only one way of doing things, you just know that that's not true because you've lived it. Yeah, it certainly seems pretty unlikely. <laughs> there might be some exceptions to the rule, but that does generally feel like a very unlikely yeah, an unrealistic position to take, I think. And give us a few examples of your dad being a radical person. Bring it to life for us a bit more. Oh, gosh. I'm trying to think of some that are appropriate. Uh, we can always we can always make it an explicit episode. That's, there's a button we can press for explicit. <laughs> no, more just... He would just always question everything. And he even, you know, does that now. So maybe if I give a now example, you know, we all talk about we shouldn't eat sugar. You know, that's kind of one of the things, you know, that we're, we're all hearing about. Now, if you would say that to my dad, he wouldn't just accept that that seems a sensible. He would immediately, well, we need sugar because we need energy. And there's always a question and there's always a, I guess, a challenge, but in an interested, curious way. Maybe the nuance to the radical is just wouldn't accept anything just as a given. and would always be curious and question and challenge it and say, well, why is that like that? And but I do need sugar because after I've had a swim, I'm old and I feel tired. I need a jelly baby. And why should I not have my jelly baby? I think I should have my jelly baby. And it's more a curious questioning, I think. And he's still learning at 82. Still wants to know the why and the how. Read a book about it if someone says something that he doesn't accept. Of course. Yeah, I was wondering what that was building up to, what he wanted to eat that you were telling him he shouldn't eat so much. I mean, well, jelly babies, amazing. All about the jelly babies. My bet was on bourbon cream biscuits. That was my... Ah, uh, no, no. He's all about the the sugar in its most simple form. <laughs> my granddad. Marshmallows, yeah. jelly babies. It's exactly when he's at. <laughs> yeah. And as you've become an adult, do you think that you've become more radical or less radical? And what's been behind that? I think that no different in terms of what I think and how I feel and maybe what my instinct would be. But I think as with most people, I think as you become an adult, you feel more comfortable bringing your real self and slightly less concerned about maybe trying to give everybody what they want and need from you. So I think my answer would be, I think inherently probably equal levels of radicalness. But I, I suppose now I feel that as long as I do it with kindness and I'm doing it for all the right reasons, I would be more comfortable expressing or behaving in a way that others might perceive as a little bit radical. Okay, yeah, I like that. So more comfortable in your own skin, more confident with putting forward your little bit radical ideas or perspective on things. Yeah. Well, I think that's a lovely position to be in as common amongst many of our guests, actually, who say something similar that they've just grown to feel like they're more authentic than when they were when they were younger. Yeah. And you start to see the downside of maybe not being authentic. It's a great word or having integrity. You see that actually that's probably pretty toxic and maybe not how you want to live your life or what you want to represent. And also maybe what you want to show your children or the other people who, you know, you, you spend time with. Of course. Well, talking of authentic and talking of confident... How did you make the decision to go into the world of funeral directing and dealing with death and, you know, people's final send off? I started my working life as a medic. So I worked in healthcare initially and then I left medicine. I was doing surgery, vascular surgery, and I left and I had a social care business. So I supported adults with learning difficulties and challenging behaviour. And then I was ready to consider what I wanted to do next. 
And I had always felt that funerals were important and maybe not always framed as helpfully as they could be within, I guess, British culture. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to bring everything that I had learned from health and social care and apply that to funeral care. So I guess that's where, without realizing it was being in any way disruptive, that was where the first slightly disruptive potential element came from, which is to say, actually, I think funeral care is part of health care. I think it's part of health and social care rather than a more transactional part of our society or transactional business, which is about stuff. I see it as something which has therapeutic potential and potentially could have a significant impact on people's well-being. Tell us more about that. That's really interesting. Well, I suppose I had my whole career, I've, it's been about trying to meet people's needs from a health and social care perspective, both physically, initially very much physically as, as a medic, but then increasingly also emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, when you moved into more community-based care for vulnerable adults. And then I became aware of that the whole picture. So the physical part, the emotional part, the spiritual part, the environment, the complexity of the web of the people that we have around us, the relationships, how important all of that connection and relationship is and how much of an impact that that has on well-being. And to my mind, the same applies in funeral care. So there are two people that we're looking after. We're looking after the person who has died and we're looking after them physically. And I see that very much as a care-based, and we follow care-based principles to do that. And we're then also looking after their family or friends or whoever it is for whom this is a really significant event and is needing to make arrangements. And we can apply exactly the same principles to how we would approach that as you would approach speaking to a patient or speaking to a family or somebody who is living in a residential care environment. It's all about understanding what somebody needs, understanding their experience to date and how that informs what they might like to do next, and then tailoring your support to meet their needs. So understanding what somebody wants, what they need, what they're scared of, what their objective is, what their priorities are, what they're having to navigate, the complexity of their situation, the people, their network, and then trying to understand how we as funeral directors, as one person, along with many others at that time, how we can help them in terms of information provision, what environment works for them, how much information. When you start framing funeral care like that, what people need is incredibly different depending on their personality, their life experience, their experience of arranging funerals, their relative comfort talking about death and dying, how comfortable they are talking about the physical aspect of that. So the fact that there is in this somewhere, there is a person, a body, someone who has died. Some people want to talk about that, other people don't. So we have to be incredibly personalized and very flexible in trying to understand what somebody wants when sometimes they don't need know that and then respond to that. I think that's why I see it as a health and social care based approach. Of course, yeah, it feels like you have a very holistic approach compared to a here's option A, B, C, we'll get the body from here to here and we'll get the people in this building and then you'll have this service. I mean, I'm sure that all of us, anyone listening as well, will have felt the difference of going to a funeral which was truly personalised and it was serving that kind of purpose that you're talking about, the more therapeutic or the community kind of purpose. I felt when a funeral feels completely wrong and I felt when a funeral feels so right for that person and the group of people there. And it is palpable and it's so important, isn't it? Yeah, and the personalization thing is interesting because I think 
there are a few large funeral organizations with large marketing budgets who are talking about personalization as being what funerals should be about. And that's interesting because for some people, that would be really helpful. Well, for a lot of people, the idea of being able to personalize something to reflect that person is absolutely one of the driving and most important principles and objectives. For others, actually, there's a place for it to be deliberately impersonal because it might not be the space actually to be bringing, you know, we don't all live charmed lives and we're not all wonderful people. (laughs) So sometimes actually it might be that personalization is absolutely not the objective. It's about putting something together which is appropriate and dignified and professional, but actually personalization is just not appropriate because it's back to that kind of integrity piece. It wouldn't be real. Of course, relationships are complicated, aren't they? They are really complicated. And, you know, people who have hurt other people do still have their funerals arranged, sometimes by those people. So I think we need to be slightly careful about the sense that, you know, lots of personalization good, not personalization bad. Again, it's a little bit more subtle than that. And it depends on what that family, that person need at that time. You're a B Corp at, at Full Circle Funerals, as I mentioned in my intro. We talk about B Corp a lot on this podcast. In fact, I get told off for perhaps talking about it too much, but I don't care because <laughs> I think it's very important. We've just been talking about feels very much like the people P of your work, seeing it as an extension of health and social care, looking after the people involved in that funeral. But you're starting to move towards being able to deal with the planet p as well right you flagged this research to me thank you very much about the environmental impacts of death and the way that we deal with dead bodies and people dying and actually how there's quite a range of impacts and that perhaps the traditional ways of doing things are not the best so could you tell us a little bit about that process of kind of unearthing that and then how it influences your work at the moment Yeah, sure. So I guess with B Corp, well, as anybody, I guess, as a business who is on their environmental journey, you start with your scope one and two, don't you? And you measure it. And we did all of that. We measured it. And and then we talked about how we might reduce it. And then we sort of maybe reduced it a little bit. And then uh, once I felt we'd sort of done a reasonable amount and we had certainly taken the easy wins in our scope one and two, I thought, well, let's have a look at scope three. And as with I'm sure many people that you speak to and many people listening, that's where it gets really interesting as a euphemism for kind of scary, daunting. For anyone who doesn't know, just explain scope one, two, three for us, just in case anyone doesn't know. My apologies. Yeah. So scope one is the energy that you use within your business. So for for us, I guess that's a building and cars would kind of be the two immediate ones. Scope two is how that energy is supplied. So we've moved to full renewables. So we've ticked that box as in I've done what I can there. And then scope three is your supply chain. So everything that happens outside of your organization. So it took me quite a while to try and wrap my mind around how to understand what my supply chain looked like, how to calculate. It's pretty hard in my opinion as a non, you know, I'm not an expert in sustainability by any stretch. But what I did realize is that actually the biggest things in my supply chain are funeral related items or services, which is probably quite obvious, but you know, (laughs) bear with me as a lay person trying to work it all out. So for example, by far the biggest thing in my supply chain for a pound per pound perspective would be cremation. So 77-ish percent of people in the UK choose flame cremation as their funeral choice. So therefore it makes sense that for me, that's the thing that Full Circle spends 
in its supply chain most money on arranging those cremations and then paying for those cremations on behalf of the people that we support. So for us, that's the local authority. And then we start having other funeral-related products. And then we get down to sort of office supplies and the things that many people would have. But the really big bits were the choices people make for their final committal, so or body disposal, which would be the term that the industry currently uses, which is not a very gentle term. But So we've kind of gone for committal instead because that feels a little bit more gentle. And coffins. So then when I started to try and consider how I might reduce some of my scope three, I realized that there isn't any data. So there was no data telling me which coffin, for example, had the uh, lowest environmental impact. And there wasn't really reliable data on which of the current body committal methods actually were better for the environment. There was a sense that we might know, but there wasn't any data. And increasingly, as with many industries, there were people making claims about their product or their service saying it was the best. Back to my dad, you think, really? Well, where's the data? Is this true? Are you sure? How do you know that? That's a really interesting claim. And the other guy said the same thing about their thing. And so I thought we are very small, but it didn't feel like anybody else was doing this. And to my mind, what was needed was for somebody independent and an expert in life cycle analysis and sustainability to take this piece of work on. So I spent a year or so just trying to generally persuade people that this was a great thing to do. And they all said, yes, that's that's really nice and all, but you know, it needs funding and we need a budget and we need a PhD student and all this sort of stuff. And in the end, I thought, well, let's crowdfund it because although I would ha have been willing to pay for it, then of course it immediately becomes not independent and it immediately then becomes our piece of work and therefore loses a lot of credibility. So I spoke to Planet Mark, who you've mentioned, and they I'm very grateful that they said that they were willing to take on coordinating and managing this piece of work, which is relatively small with quite a narrow scope. So it was about understanding the carbon emissions associated with body committal and with 10 of the commonest coffins. They said that they would take that on. We crowdfunded £20,000, which shows that the community care about this because people were willing to put their money into having these answers. And then we're now at the stage where the report is ready. And one of the really important things was that all of the data would be made publicly available. So that's all in a report that is available for anybody to look at. And it shows the calculations. It shows the work that the lifecycle analysis group put together. It shows how Planet Mark has understood that information and what they think the next step should be. And then the hope here, we're not quite there yet because we currently still have some quite significant challenges to that, which we're just navigating at the moment. Once we manage to do that, which I hope we will have done by the time this podcast comes out, then the idea is that that information will be available to people who want to make greener choices. So they will objectively be able to see, right, if I choose this coffin, that is associated with, I don't know, 30 kilograms of carbon. Whereas if I choose this one, it's with five. So I'm going to choose that because that matters to me. And they will also be able to see the consequences, or I guess the impact of choosing flame cremation versus traditional burial, natural burial. And then we're hoping that the industry will then see this as a nudge to start to take it forward. I mean, it's a very limited and small piece of work, but hopefully what it shows is that this all, is all possible. So we should start thinking about it and talking about it. And then the third thing is hopefully what this will mean is that at some point, a regulator, of which we currently don't have one, so funeral care is unregulated, there's no code of practice, no national minimum standard, but at some point, we will probably get a regulator that they could maybe use this to think about how there could be some structural changes to funeral care to make it more sustainable. 
Wow. So it's a very long answer. No, it's a fantastic answer. So there's no regulator. So I, tomorrow, I could set up a funeral practice, could I? Yeah, yeah, we don't have a regulator. There are two trade associations, but membership is not compulsory. They have standards and codes of practices that if you sign up to those trade associations, you follow. But there is no, yeah, we are currently unregulated, which I think a lot of listeners would be surprised about, I would imagine. Yeah, something that affects literally everyone. Yeah. (laughs) At some point. Yeah. Millions of funerals going on every day. Oh, I think the same with the carbon emissions. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if everyone went from flame cremation to natural burial, say, presumably timesing that by the number of funerals that happen around the country around the world that adds up to a really big number and a really big impact right yeah yeah it's a really big number so i'm not going to quote it here because as i say i'm just navigating a few threats of legal action but <laughs> it's in the report it's a big number and i think that's the thing isn't it you know yeah as numbers go for one person these are not eye-watering numbers compared to some other industries but when you then realize how many of these are happening every day then it does become significant and and a lot of people do care but when you're arranging a funeral you know you've often got a lot of different things to navigate so you may care about sustainability but you've also got other things there you want to reflect the person you want to acknowledge that there are other people for whom this is an important event who maybe don't care so much about the environment and who are looking for something that they expect so there's quite a lot of different things that people have to navigate. And I think it's really important that we don't put people under a moral pressure to say, well, if you choose flame cremation, then that's bad. A funeral is made up of a whole load of different decisions, each of which has an impact on the environment. And I suppose what we're keen to do is just nudge people's thinking and behaviour towards if there are two options that you would be happy with and that you think are appropriate and reflect the person and meet your needs, then actually if one of them is much better for the environment Maybe it makes sense to choose that one. There's a reason that we didn't set up as a green funeral director because I didn't want to just be supporting people who are already identified as that being their most important objective. What I wanted to do is not be a particular type of funeral director, be able to meet everybody's needs, but when possible and when somebody is interested, be able to help them to navigate some choices which would be better for the environment because I think that's collectively where we'll have the biggest impact. Well, I think that's really eloquently put and going back to the the B Corp thing and the fact that it's not just the planet P, it's the people P as well. So if you were insisting on certain choices because they were more sustainable, then that wouldn't be giving the right prioritisation to the people element of that. Someone might have died who would have hated the idea of being naturally buried under a tree, (laughs) you know, so it's wrong. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Is there a number for the number of cremations that happen in the UK every day, every week, every year? Well, as a ballpark figure, there are something in the order of, say for argument's sake, 600,000 funerals in the UK every year, and 77% of those are currently flame cremation. Wow, yeah. Even if you take the people who would be perfectly happy to choose something else would be appropriate for them, and they'd choose it based on its environmental credentials. Yes. Be a big chunk. Yeah, and but there's also, you know, a lot of those crematorias are currently fossil fuel fueled when that's such a difficult phrase there's too many fuel fuels mm, of course yeah is it gas exactly yes so there's also an interesting conversation and more research needed you know there's now a little bit of a move to electric cremation there's some conversations about biofuel i think this is where the sort of industry and regulators i think there's a place to be having a really open and interesting conversation about what the next 10 to 20 years look like 
because these are massive pieces of kit that are incredibly expensive and actually from a structural perspective with some regulation and some guidance and maybe some funding and support what do we want to move to i think asking the general public to make these changes when there aren't really viable or lots of viable alternatives feels like a small part of it but we also need to be talking about how we restructure the industry over a longer term with support and funding and better research to inform those decisions do we think that flame cremation fueled by renewables is the way to go do we think biofuels are the way to go are we saying all flame cremation is bad because of the air pollution? We don't really know those answers yet. And what I was hoping to do with this research is not say, look, we have the answer, but to say, look, we're really small. Some of you guys are really big and the community funded this. So people care. And look, we can do this little thing, which shows that it is doable. What we're now asking is that you move from it's too hard to oh, okay, you know, we could now also do a little bit. And if everyone did a little bit before we know it, we have some really reliable data about what we need to do as an industry. That means that people have enough choice to get what they need, but also we have collectively contributed to getting where we need to be by 2030 or 2050, whatever number it is that you were going to work towards. So it was a nudge to start those conversations. And as you can imagine... At the moment, we're just in that kind of storming stage where some people are saying, yay, this is really great. You've started a conversation. Let's move this forward. Others are probably still in the mindset of critiquing the specifics of this report. So we just need to try and move forward to the next bit, which is, yes, it's not perfect. So what do we do to make it a little bit more perfect so that we can make some good decisions? Great example, I think, of a little bit radical piece of action commissioning this this research and trying to drive your industry forward despite your size is like the definition of the podcast really so congratulations i'd like to ask a slightly more left field question now to wrap up the work section do you think in the uk we are good at death or do do you think that there's lots of room for improvement okay so that's a really big question yeah so and i guess are you talking about the process of dying are you talking about what happens afterwards are you talking about how we talk about it i'm going to do that annoying thing where i just change the question slightly and answer that and then you can tell me off if that doesn't work so i think what we could be better at is talking about death dying and bereavement more openly with each other in general and that's something that we work quite hard to try and support so in the industry it's called death literacy which I appreciate is a very kind of industry specific Great, phrase. love it. And I'm not really talking about around the time that somebody is dying. I'm talking about generally. Right. I think that would be really helpful. And I think if we had communities and relationships where we were just a little bit more open to acknowledging that people die and that's really hard and people experience bereavement and that's hard. Actually, we want to show up for people and we want to be there. And we might not know exactly what that looks like, but actually maybe just a bit of kindness would do the job. Let's take all those layers of pressure off saying the right thing and doing the right thing and having the answer and making it better and just become more comfortable with showing up and saying, I imagine this is all quite hard and I just want you to know that I acknowledge that I'm here. If we did that a little bit more, I think we would have kinder and more accepting communities. There's a growing movement now for grief kindness as a concept. So we would just generally have places, workplaces, communities, streets, school playgrounds, 
where we're all a little bit more comfortable. And I think it would also mean that people are much more likely to have their needs met around dying and funerals and bereavement because we would just be more informed. Knowledge is power, isn't it? And if we talked about it a little bit more, we would just be more knowledgeable about a subject. We would know what grief looks and feels like. So when it happens to us, we wouldn't be surprised when we have some pain, physical pain, or we might not be surprised when one day we're okay and the next day we're really not okay. We would just be much better informed for ourselves and be able to show up for other people. And fundamentally, most of it really is about the basic principles of kindness, compassion, relationships, connection, showing up for people. So if I had a magic wand and I could make us better, rather than criticizing where we are now, if I could make us better, it would be that everybody was a little bit more accepting of the fact that it's going to happen and therefore a little bit more comfortable talking about it. And I think we would all end up happier as a result. We would be more grateful. We would be more aware of the beauty in the smallest moments. We would be more appreciative of the time we have and the people that we're with. And we would also be able to show up for people that we care about when they need us. I think that's fantastic, Sarah. Thank you for sharing that. I, mean, I think that's a good principle around many moments in life, not just death. Actually, as the father of a young child, a lot of what you were saying resonated with me around birth, actually, <laughs> and how little you realise you know about the process of birth and raising a child before it's happening to you. And I imagine exactly the same happens in death quite often, that you know very little about you know what actually happens when someone is you know in those final stages of, yeah. those, of their life and afterwards. I'm going to make it a point to um, have a few conversations, I think, about... There's a wonderful lady called Catherine Mannix on that. She's certainly done a BBC Bite Size. She's managed to get into some really public spaces and she talks a lot about the normal process of dying. And that's exactly her argument. If we all knew what normal dying looked like, we would be much less frightened and we would know how to be there. What is right for us and is right for that person. So she has managed to articulate that in a way that I think is generally very, very powerful and empowering for people. Because for most of us, all you see is what you see on the telly. And, you know, the telly doesn't show you right, yeah. normal, slow, gentle death. You know, that's not dramatic enough. It's like intensely dramatic or not covered at all, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And what she brings is actually, for the majority of people, this is what that looks like and this is how you can be there. And actually, it can be very different and much less frightening than what you think. And I suppose we're sort of trying to do something slightly similar with funerals and say... This isn't this just something that you get through. This is actually something that we can help you to get what you need and do a little bit of emotional laboring. So work out actually what kind of gifting do you want to do? What might feel right? And the amount of people who contact us afterwards and say, I have no idea if this is strange, but that was a really great day. You know, that really worked and that was great. And I'm super proud of what I created. And that's the key. They created it. We didn't tell them what they should do or how to not mess it up, they created it. And sometimes people need reminded of that, that actually it was their creation. All we did was ask the questions, give them some information, and then help them put it together. And then, as you said, turn up with the right stuff at the right time on the day. <laughs> we are incredibly resilient, and we have so much innate strength. And sometimes you just need somebody to help you find it. Absolutely. Well, congratulations for helping so many people do exactly that. Again, going to things that we should talk more about and be more open about, you know, grief as a subject is not just pure doldrums, you know, for years on end, is it? It's ups and downs and it's it's complicated. And you can have moments of elation while you're grieving as well as moments of being very depressed. 
And grieving and loss, that's not just about dying, you know, people who experience relationship breakups, people who move house, for children who, you know, for me, moving a lot as a child, it was never talked about, but all of those are, that there's a significant loss and there is some sort of processing that's needed. So again, if we talked about maybe loss and acknowledge the losses that we have, be that a physical loss, you know, as we get older, people experience physical losses because they can't maybe do the things that they used to be able to do. If we all talked about that a little bit more, that would be really helpful. Good recommendations coming out of this podcast. I'm going to throw one in as well, the program that I watched that I thought was fantastic on the subject of death. And it was Grayson Perry, the artist's um, program he did for Channel 4. Did you see that one? I've heard about it. I haven't seen it. I mean, it's probably a bit like a busman's holiday for you, but it um, (laughs) it was fantastic. And looking like he does, you know, looking at death from 90 degrees, I'd say. So he visited other cultures where they have very different practices, like leaving the body in the house as long as the family deem it necessary which is often a period of months and the body is kind of there for a a period of months and the grieving process and the therapeutic process is aided by their presence being there for longer settling in a more gentle way as you say because Mm -hmm. they're you know they're there and present in the space to a living funeral he attended that was a really moving thing so yeah i'd really recommend that it's on channel four i think you can watch it on all four we're going to move to the last part of the conversation now, Sarah, which is we're going to lift you out of your day-to-day and look to the, the world at large. So if you did have a little bit of a radical change for the world that maybe you can't influence on a day-to-day basis, but what would you like to see happen? Ah, oh, this is such a hard question. Everything that came to me is just so trite and dull. World peace? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, yeah, that kind of vibe. World peace which is, is good to just... wish for. It's fine. So the first thing to come up for me with that whole kindness thing, which I do totally it's live relevant. by. I think it's if relevant. we were all a little bit kinder, I say that to my kids, what would kindness do? And whatever path it is that I felt the need to ask the question, it generally stops that path. But I love that. Yeah. Well, they intensely dislike it because clearly, that, you know, that's irritating. I think proper kindness, again, something we should talk more about. There was an interview I did for this podcast with Jenny Kitchen from Yo-Yo who had this kindness mantra uh, as well that, you know, she really clearly articulated like you have kindness and being kind has been ruined by people who use it as a reason for them not to receive legitimate criticism of what they for what they're doing you know which is really annoying because i completely believe you that kindness should be something that we're all standing up for more yeah and doing the right by right thing by people but the other thing that occurred to me and i don't know how this is gonna land you can edit me out kind of outside of work I'm very interested in human thinking and I guess psychology and wellness and one of the things that I think would be really helpful for people or for everybody to know is that um, your thoughts are not the reality so people understand that they think a thing be that maybe an unkind thing or a mean thing or a judgmental thing and that that's just a thought and you don't have to act upon it and it's not real or true unless you then do something that makes that real or true. And I think that if everybody knew that and realised that, that would probably be quite helpful because we have the ability to change our thoughts and work with our thoughts. And I think some thoughts lead to people behaving in a way which is not helpful for them, but also not helpful for the planet or helpful for the people around them. And if we all had a, a bit more understanding about how we could maybe change some of that in a way that's more constructive for us, takes into account the planet, the challenges, our communities, people who need us, 
I think that would be helpful. And particularly if you recognize that some of those thoughts actually lead you to behave in a way which isn't helping other people. You kind of got the self bit, haven't you? But yeah. you've also got, you know, one of the things we're talking about today in terms of the, you know, the planet or one of the big things that you talk about, what do we do from a sustainability perspective? You know, there are some thoughts that people have, like, I want more stuff. Uh, there's lots of things in our helping us to continue that thought, aren't there? There's lots of drivers to maintain that thought. Of course. But actually yeah. just knowing that that's just a thought. I don't actually need more stuff. It will result then maybe in less consumerism and, and therefore, you know, better things for the planet. So I feel like that's, um, yeah, for self and for planet and for others. And also just the sense that you can think really mean things about things and people and they're just thoughts. But you're a bad person until you do something about it. Deeds, not words or deeds, not thoughts yeah. in this case is what, <laughs> what yeah. counts at the end. Fantastic, Sarah. So last question now, always the same for all our guests. So if there's someone listening who has a little bit of a radical idea, perhaps for a business or for their personal life, and they want to get going, what advice would you give to that person? Okay, so my advice is to surround yourself with at least one or two people who are your biggest advocate and your biggest critic. Because what they will do for you, they'll have your back and you will trust and believe that. So you'll know that everything is coming from a place of support but they will also challenge you on what it is that you are proposing to do. And that will either help you to make it better and therefore more likely to succeed and land well, certainly help you to think it through a little bit better, but they might also show you if there's bits of it that doesn't work. And I guess if you're lucky, you will have those people in your world, you know, people that you know who tick those two boxes. And if not, you maybe need to go and find one and that might be a professional person. But I think that combination is an incredibly important combination to have around you. Fantastic advice. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast and look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please follow us on your podcast platform. If you'd like to appear on A Little Bit Radical or have an idea of someone we should speak to, please email podcast at standingongiants.com. Or get in touch with me on LinkedIn. You can search Rob Fawkes or search Standing on Giants and you'll find me there. Thank you very much and speak to you next time. Mm -hmm.